It was the day before the election, and Svetlana Tikhanovskaya was thinking about the moment the decision to run for president of Belarus became real. There were some difficult uh, moments, but one of the most difficult was when I got this telephone call. She's 37 years old, she has two children, and she's been in politics for less than a month. Uh, A known person told me that they will put me in jail and my uh, children will be put in orphanage. And she was scared. Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, possibly the most unlikely candidate, was taking on Alexander Lukashenko, the longest-serving dictator in the past 26 years of Europe's history and all of Belarus's history. And I was just absolutely ready to leave this. But then I understood that they don't have any reason to put me in jail. She hadn't done anything wrong. This is the story of a mother standing up to the so-called father of Belarus. And it's a story that could change history. Tikhanovskaya is fighting for her country, and she's fighting for freedom. In our country, we don't need any reason to put a person in jail. I'm Kevin Hurton. Malika Bilal is on assignment. And this is The Take. We'll get back to Svetlana Tikhanovskaya shortly. You can't really tell the story of what's going on in Belarus right now without her. But first, I want to introduce you to Al Jazeera's Moscow correspondent. My name is Steph Fassen. I actually left from Moscow to Amsterdam during the pandemic, and I was uh, stuck in, in the Netherlands. But then I flew to Minsk. She flew to Minsk to get that interview and to cover this historic election, which had the potential, well, actually still has the potential, to topple. Alexander Lukashenko. And from Moscow, the view of Belarus was very different from what Step saw when she first got to Minsk. Well, I never expected when I was in Moscow watching Belarus that the people were so eager for change. And, and they are very eager for change. And they say they have a right to live as a normal person with freedom, that they can go on the streets, not risking arrest or being beaten up, just, you know, have a normal life. And they're sort of caught up in this awful geopolitical situation between Europe and Russia, sort of held hostage in this very complicated international game. You know, we want our own independent Belarus. That's all they are asking for. Belarus used to be part of the Soviet Union until Moscow lost it to the Cold War. It gained independence in 1990, and in 1994, the Constitution was finalized, and Alexander Lukashenko, a former Soviet soldier and the director of a collective pig farm, was elected president. At first, Belarusians questioned Lukashenko's sophistication, but his populist appeal and ambition were hard to deny. And he had strongman instincts from the start. He installed his own head of the election commission. And while Moscow entered this new era by changing the name of the secret police, Lukashenko did not. Belarusians are still mindful of their state security committee. You've probably heard the acronym, KGB. In Belarus, the KGB still exists. Absolutely. What he, of course, always has offered the people in Belarus was uh, stability. He's always considered as the father of the nation. They call him Batka, which means little father. And that's how he looks at his people, like they're his children in a way. So they have to listen to him and he knows best for them. 
that's also one of the reasons most people have just been passive in politics. They were not involved in politics at all for many, many years. It was repressive, but it was stable and they could still sort of have a life and the economy was sort of okay. And Belarus never left Russia's side like its neighbors did. Poland and the former Soviet Baltic nations, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, are all part of Europe and NATO now, while Belarus has stayed loyal to Russia. But that doesn't mean Lukashenko and Putin have always gotten along. Energy supplies and economics have revealed where the real balance of power lies. Earlier this month, live on Russian state television, President Lukashenko interrupted President Putin mid-flow. The economy went really down in the last couple of years. He had these quarrels with Russia. Oil subsidies went down. People really felt that here in their daily lives. I'm 51 years old, and to be honest, I can't watch how my mother is forced to count every cent because of her small pension. Then came the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Lukashenko was completely downplaying it, making it ridiculous, saying it was uh, all kinds of uh, psychosis and you could just cure yourself by drinking vodka or going to the sauna. And meanwhile, people were actually falling ill and they were dying of COVID. Belarus is entering a new phase in the evolution of the outbreak. We are seeing community transmission occurring. The situation is concerning and warrants new measures. So that has really hit hard here in the population because people felt he doesn't care about our health or about our lives. And that made a real turnaround and that's why the opposition was growing so fast. Lukashenko really underestimated this because he never felt this kind of opposition. He, he always thought he could control it. And when Steppe arrived in Minsk just over three weeks ago, before the August 9th election, Lukashenko, for the first time in 26 years, appeared to be on the verge of losing control. Exactly, yeah. We were uh, asked to cover the elections, uh, presidential elections. And of course, we knew for the uh, assignment that this was going to be quite an interesting and possibly a much more longer assignment than we were predicting. So it seemed uh, clear that this was the biggest challenge to President Lukashenko's rule because there were already large crowds on the streets uh, for the opposition rallies. Step was traversing the city following these protests. I sort of start to know it quite a bit. It is a kind of old Soviet architecture. Lots of apartments and quite robust buildings, I would say, like monuments a lot, these old classical style buildings that you also see in Moscow. What really amazes me is the people. People here are so super friendly, very helpful, super polite. They would never cross a red light. Even when they're demonstrating, they stop for a traffic light. You don't see that in many other countries and they're very helpful. They really make sure that you have enough to drink and to eat. So they're serving food while they're protesting. You know, the motherly vibe isn't really that surprising when you think about it. Chocolate, cake, all kinds of food was passed on. People were feeling betrayed by someone who saw himself as their father. And that's how this young mother, Svetlana Tekhanovskaya, stepped in. Her husband had been speaking out against Lukashenko on YouTube for years, and had gained a real following. Ahead of the election, that was seen as a threat. And in May, he was sent to jail along with many others. 
uh, Lukashenko's, he locked up most of the important opposition leaders. So for Lukashenko, that's problem solved, right? Well, not quite. He didn't see there was another threat until uh, the wife of one of them, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, stood up and joined together with two other uh, women, also the wife of another leader who was in the jail. And that's who led the opposition, these three women. With the three of them, they went on uh, all these rallies around the country. And still, Lukashenko thought, okay, these are women. I don't need to take them seriously. A woman can never lead the country anyway. So he was like talking about them like they were little girls, basically. But then, um, yeah, we know what happened. Hundreds of thousands of people have been supporting them. So you had a chance to sit down with the opposition candidate Svetlana Tikhanovskaya. And this was before the election, on a very busy day. How did that go? Yeah, I found her uh, in a very tired state. Uh, She was really exhausted and she was scared because uh, she was threatened many times, of course. You were very uh, reluctant in the beginning to run for president, right? My first step wasn't for presidency as it is, but it was for love to my husband when I decided to register as candidate. And she made it very clear from the beginning that she doesn't want to be president, but she will only be like sort of a transitional leader and will make sure that there will be free and fair elections so people can choose their own leader. But uh, I could feel her 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 worries. She was very scared. She was especially very scared for her children. So she has two children and she brought them away uh, to Lithuania before the elections already. But of course, she's worried that they could be hit there too. So it was complicated. She said, I'm doing this, but I want to pull out any moment. During the conversation, Tikhanovskaya told the story of her own political history, and it mirrored the history of much of her country. In the beginning, she just wasn't interested. As most of our people, I wasn't involved in politics. I had good life. I had my family, so... She was apolitical. Now she's very political, and her countrymen have followed her. She has strong feelings about Lukashenko specifically. I don't know how can a person rule country where people, softly speaking, don't like him, just hate him, you know, most of them. But will he go quietly? I wish he I wish he will. But I don't know if the person is ruling all this time, you know, he's like a king. He feels himself like a king and we are all the people in his kingdom and only he is a power and we don't have any rights at all. Remember, this conversation was happening the day before the election. If the elections would be free and fair, how many percent of the voters would vote for you? I suppose about 65, 70. You would be a big winner then? I would be, yes, I would. (laughs) But maybe not on Sunday. I think we have no chances for fair elections. Just a few hours after I spoke to her, she actually went into hiding because police showed up at her apartment. But the next day... She voted. And she she left again. But she was right. Alexander Lukashenko declared himself the winner with... 
80% of the vote. 80%. And we were sort of thinking like 68, 70 maybe. We no nobody expected 80. And as scared as she was, Tikhanovskaya fought back. The next day, she uh, filed a complaint against the election result because there were lots of uh, reports of uh, falsifications, fraud. What happened in that uh, conversation when she was filing the complaint, we still don't know for sure, but what we know is that she was kept in a room uh, together with two men who came in with video equipment. Uh, and she was there for hours without a lawyer, without her phone, without anything. And the next thing we know is she slips out through the back door and ends up in Lithuania. So she has never really explained what happened, but I spoke to Maria Kalesnikova, one of the other three women. She said uh, it's for sure that she was threatened because suddenly there was a video coming out, her reading something from a statement, uh, saying that the protest should stop. That was definitely not her own will. I know that many will understand me, many will judge me, and many will begin to hate me. But God forbid anyone faces the choices I had. Then, of course, they have her husband. He's in jail here. So it's very easy for the, for the authorities to threaten her. So that's probably the reason she left. For days, no one heard from Tikhanovskaya. And in Belarus, things are getting worse. Worried about the fate of their loved ones, relatives and friends outside this detention center in Minsk shout cries of support. Of course, uh, after the elections, we first had a very serious and violent uh, police crackdown. And it becomes more and more clear that this was completely organized from the top. Thousands of people were detained, brutally beaten, so this was a, an idea, probably by the government, to make sure that this opposition would keep silent once and for all. But then something really surprising happened. Suddenly, uh, hundreds of women started to walk around on the streets, uh, wearing white clothes, carrying flowers. And they were marching from one place to the other, just circling around, making sure they wouldn't be arrested. But police didn't know what to do. What are they going to do with women wearing white, carrying flowers? So then there was a long chain of people who were sort of marching together with them. And that definitely was a breakthrough, a turning point. So then larger demonstrations happened, larger protests until on Sunday. Two weeks ago Sunday. More than 200,000 people went to the street. And that was definitely the largest demonstration of a protest rally Belarus had ever seen. 200,000 people, it's, it's unthinkable anywhere, especially in a place like Minsk that just has no history of this, was just never allowed to have these kind of mass protests. What were people feeling? I mean, were people shocked by the numbers? Definitely, they've never seen such a thing before in their lives. But they also uh, felt uh, like this new kind of freedom. So there was this euphoria, there was music, people were like singing, there were like all kinds of posters with uh, the most creative things uh, uh, Lukashenko's uh, pictures and, and signs and um, saying, you know, uh, we don't want you anymore, you have to go out. There was this also mood of anger because, of course, there have been 
human rights violations here in the last decades. And uh, there were like uh, opposition being detained and all that stuff. But they've never seen such a thing before in their lives. Even from thousands of miles away, witnessing this was pretty unbearable. There was a video that came out. And a warning to our listeners, this is very violent if you want to rejoin us in a minute. It's the sound of what seems to be beatings going on inside the jail in Minsk. Step talked to some of the torture victims after they were released. 16-year-old Muron was the first in his family to be detained. These guys who were, you know, beating us and detaining us, they told us that they have uh, an order and they, they can do whatever they want. So they have the, like, the highest permission to do anything. Then his parents went to the police station to look for him. They were detained too. All the women were forced to completely undress and they were filming us on their phones. Then we moved to the floor where naked men were kneeling, hands behind their backs. I could only think about my son's friend who saw her father naked in this position. When she turned her head away, she was beaten. Christina, Miran's mom, is diabetic and was refused medicine for three nights. Men were screaming for their mothers. There were the sounds of electroshocks, sounds of horror, sounds of beatings. And there were women in our cell who knew their children were among them and their husbands too. It was horrifying. It was more horrible than being beaten ourselves. This mass protest was so hopeful but it unleashed this wave of violence that people of Belarus had never experienced. This large-scale violence committed towards the population as a whole, because it wasn't just a protest, it were random people picked up from the street, has had such a large impact on the population. I could say they're really seriously traumatized by it, and they really feel that uh, the president, Lukashenko, is responsible for it. So they've been also shouting, uh, he has to go to face a tribunal, you have to be locked up. That's, that's a message that you hear very strongly here now. I've noticed in the past few days a sense of pessimism is creeping in. At least that's from the outside. Is that what it feels like in the inside? Yes, it feels definitely like that. The whole euphoric mood and uh, this renewed uh, freedom that they found, uh, you don't feel it at the moment anymore. People are still defiant and unbelievably brave. They still go to the streets, but in smaller numbers. You feel it's getting more desperate now, and it also feels like there is still a scare and fear is creeping in again. And to hold on to power, Lukashenko has one place to turn, and that's Russia. They have this union state together, which is more like a symbolic unity than real political unity. But still, they have an agreement that they have to help each other militarily if there's an external threat. So that's why uh, Lukashenko has uh, called uh, Putin, even though he was quarreling with him for quite a while in the last couple of years. So they've been on the phone for four times, I think, already. Uh, and Putin seems to be backing him still. Uh, and what we also know is that some people from Russian television are now working here, which is also interesting. So you could see that there's some kind of Russian propaganda creeping into Belarus right now. But the fear uh, of military troops being sent, that still hasn't materialized. People are very worried about that, of course. Just last week. Putin announced he's prepared to send special police into Belarus if, quote, extremist elements allow things to get out of control. Step is still covering Russia. 
and Putin's popularity has been struggling recently. She says Putin's worried too. He's very worried about this situation, especially because this kind of uh, demand for change is not something that he wants to see in his own country. I mean, 200,000 people on the streets of Moscow, that would, be, that would not be good for Putin. That's why I think he wants this off the street as soon as possible. And that's why this could be the turning point, because now he's still giving Lukashenko the benefit of the doubt. But there's also this, this feeling that Putin is just waiting and seeing where this is going with Lukashenko. If he can't stop these protests anytime soon, he will leave Lukashenko probably and find someone else. One of the things that um, interests me about the dynamic here, and one of the, it might be the explanation for why Putin hasn't sent troops in, because the opposition is also pro-Russian. It's not like the opposition is, is a pro-NATO candidate and wants to join Western Europe. No, they've been very clear about that. And of course they're clear about it, because if they're not clear about it, if there's European flags uh, during the protest, of course they're worried that Putin will see this as a sign that Belarus uh, will move to uh, Europe and to NATO, and then he will definitely have a reason to invade. Why would Putin want to come in and back a historically unpopular Lukashenko if he can just give the backing to another pro-Russian candidate who has more popularity with the people? Exactly. So, while Putin is mulling his decision, will he move away from Lukashenko, the old white man who's been the face of leadership for so long, or will he look to something new? Tikhonovskaya is still in hiding in Lithuania. And Stepp says even if Putin does look to the opposition, Tikhonovskaya still might not get the job. I think the general feeling here is that unfortunately the women have uh, fought the battle at the front line, but the men will get the job. Because if Lukashenko steps down, of course, her husband will be released. Now he's sort of regrouping himself. He's rebounding right now. He's uh, tightening his grip on power. He's, uh, he's making it very clear that the security forces are still behind him. It could take a while. It, took, it could take a lot longer. Lukashenko will have to step down. I can't tell you when. <laughs> So Lukashenko's still digging in, and Tikhonovskaya is still speaking out from Lithuania. And these speeches are increasingly aimed at the West. She spoke to the European Parliament and publicly called for U.S. President Donald Trump's help. And she's also still inspiring people, and not just in Belarus. I was walking in Washington, D.C. last week, and this happened. My daughter, who was born here, she's getting a brand new perspective on things that a lot of things to be taken for granted. Belarusians were joined with like-minded neighbors from Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, and they were forming a chain. What about this human chain? To really show solidarity amongst the Baltic nations, a physical human chain was created which stretched across all three Baltic nations. And there was another chain of people forming in Europe, across these countries, at the same time. Belarus's Baltic neighbors are supporting this new quest for change. But the threat of Russian invasion is as high as it's been in years. And it's got them worried. That's the next episode of The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Dina Kizba, Priyanka Tilve, Abigail oni Wolkacha, Alexandra Locke, Ney Alvarez, and me, Kevin Hurton. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. Our executive producer is Stacy Samuel. And our head of audio is Graylin Brashear. 
I'll be back on Wednesday, and Malika Bilal will be back very soon, don't worry. Oh, and one more thing. When I'm not here with you, I host my own podcast as part of Al Jazeera's investigative unit, and we have a fresh episode, The Cypress Papers. It's a major leak of documents that sparked an investigation that's reverberating around the world right now. Pretty cool. Find it where you find your podcasts. It's Al Jazeera Investigates, The Cypress Papers.